Well, welcome again. We're in the middle of a sermon series uh, called All Things New, Following Jesus as Perpetual Beginners. And, uh, you know, to follow Jesus is to continually be surprised at the new things he's up to in our world. And because of these new things that Jesus is up to, it means we can be people of deep, deep hope. And the world needs people of hope right now. Uh, God's not done with us. He's not done with his world. He hasn't forgotten us. He's not going to leave us as we are. No, he's at work renewing all things. And when we live in the, the light of that good news, we can have real, genuine hope in hard times. But the always new work of God also pushes us to places of humility. Because for something to be new means, of course, that it's unknown to us. To fully embrace the good news of the gospel, we have to approach it as children. Perpetually curious and open to a fresh movement of God. We have to become... Beginners, again, holding hope and humility hand in hand. So I want us to take a moment to pause before the scripture is read. The scripture readers can can come forward so that they're ready to read. But I want us to take a moment to pause before it's read this morning. You can close your eyes if you want. And I want you to ask yourself these questions. Am I open? Am I open to hope? This morning, am I open to a word of hope from God? Am I open? Like a humble child, am I open to learning something new today? Holy Spirit, soften our hearts so we may be like the good soil that Jesus talks about. The good, soft, fertile soil that receives your word and produces much fruit. Holy Spirit, tune our ears to hear your voice above all else. To hear your frequency above the noise this morning. We're here for a word from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's Old Testament reading is Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And from Genesis 3.16, 
To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Our New Testament reading for today is Galatians three twenty six to 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave or free, nor there male or female, for you are all in one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs, heirs according to the promise. The word of God to the people of God. Well, let's begin with, uh, with a game, okay? Let's play a little game. I'm going to list some facts about a person from history, and you can see if you can guess who that person is. Now, don't shout it out. Don't spoil it for anyone. If you want, you can kind of tap, you know, the person next to you and say, I'm pretty sure I know who it is, but that's about it, okay? Here we go. And, and make sure you don't put any pictures of the person up yet over there on slides, okay? Okay, she was born in 1875 in South Carolina. She attended Trinity Presbyterian Missionary School. She attended Moody Bible Institute. After graduating, she wanted to be a missionary to Africa. She founded a college in Daytona Beach, Florida. She helped build a hospital. She was a national advisor to Franklin D. Roosevelt. Her home in Daytona Beach is a national historic landmark. Her house in Washington, D.C. is a national historic site. And she has a 17-foot-tall bronze memorial sculpture in Lincoln Park in D.C. Can you guess who it is? Let's do some more details. Ready? Same statements with some context. She was born in 1875 in South Carolina. Her parents were recently freed slaves. She was the 15th born of 17 children, one of the first born after her parents were freed. She attended Trinity Presbyterian Missionary School. She was the first in her family to go to school. It was a five-mile walk, and when she got home, she taught all the rest of her family, including her parents, the lessons she learned for the day. She attended Moody Bible Institute as the only black student. There's a picture that you can now show. Is she hard to find? You can go to the next one. There you go. After graduating, she wanted to be a missionary to Africa. However, she was told 
there was no place for her as an African-American to serve as a missionary in Africa. Instead of despairing, she knew all too well that there were African-Americans all over this country in need of the love of Christ. So she founded a college in Daytona Beach, Florida with five students and $1.50, she launched a school for black girls that later became known and is still in existence today as Bethune-Cookman University. You're getting lots of clues now, okay? She helped build a hospital. In 1911, after her students at that school were denied care at a white hospital, she helped build one to ensure they received equitable and competent care. She was a national advisor to Franklin D. Roosevelt, whom she worked with as a member of his black cabinet. In 1940, she became vice president of the NAACP, a position she held for the rest of her life. She was appointed by President Harry S. Truman as the only woman of color at the founding conference of the United Nations in 1945. This 17-foot-tall bronze statue was the first monument to honor an African-American and a woman in a public park in D.C. There she is. Can you guess who it is? Mary McLeod Bethune. The testimony of her life is incredible. And I barely scratched the surface. It would have been the whole sermon if I talked about her, gave her due justice. I mean, it's crazy. And when I hear the story of someone like this, I wonder, and maybe you wonder, how does anyone become this kind of person? Um, She's known as the first lady of struggle. How do you become that kind of person? Uh, but in her, quest, in, her, in her case, we also have to ask the question, not just how does anyone become this person, but how does a child of slaves born 150 years ago become this kind of person? As a five-year-old, she was dropped off at a white nursery, and she was super intrigued by all the toys that white nurseries had and even a book. So she goes to the book, picks it up and looks at it, and a little white boy snatches it out of her hand and says, you're black, you can't read. And she realized, oh, maybe that's one of the big dividing things between white and black people. So she was dedicated to learning how to read. But in a society that barely believed that blacks should have any form of freedom, how did a black woman become the kind of force for flourishing that she did? Do you remember the scripture that was read a couple minutes ago from Galatians? Well, Mary, she said it was the words of Paul in Galatians 3.28 that deeply impacted her sense of dignity and self-worth. If you're wondering the power of Scripture, listen to this. She said, With these words, the scales fell from my eyes and the light came flooding in. My sense of inferiority, my fear of handicaps dropped away. Whosoever, it said, 
No Jew, no Gentile, no black, nor white, no male and female, just whosoever. It meant that I, a humble Negro girl, had just as much chance as anybody in the sight and love of God. I mean, talk about all things new. Come on! This is the power of Galatians 3.28. Yes, come on. This reinforces the image of God in all people. And it forces us to imagine a new way of relating. But there's also a way that many have stripped Galatians 3.28 of its power. Some say this verse is only speaking about faith in Christ. It's only about someone's relationship with God, not their relationship with each other. This is a common interpretation. And in this interpretation, all that Paul is saying, which is still good news, but it's not the full news, is that Greeks, slaves, and women can become Christians by faith in Jesus. It evades any practical implications of our becoming one in Christ. It has to do, see, with our vertical relationships only. Gentiles can now come to God through Christ. Slaves can now come to God through Christ. And women can now come to God through Christ. And in front of Christ, in the spiritual realm, all are equal. Uh, Just so you know, this is how pastors and theologians justifying the apartheid interpreted this verse. This is how Christian slaveholders interpreted this verse. And this is also how men who believe their God-ordained design is to hold authority over women interpret this verse. If you want to interpret this verse that way, that's okay. Just know the company that you're in. Let's read it again. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You can see in verse 26 and 27, this verse is speaking to those who are already baptized. You've been baptized. You're already a Christian. They're already clothed in Christ. So the question for us is this. Does baptism make any difference to how we relate to one another? If you are someone who likes big theological words, you could put it this way. Does soteriology, which has to do with our salvation in Christ, have anything to do with ecclesiology, which has to do with how the church relates to one another and exists? Does soteriology have implications for ecclesiology? Does it affect only our relationship with God, or does it affect our relationships with each other? When Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, does that refer only to the Gentile and God? You can show that little image of the vertical. Is it just the Gentile and God? There's another image there. 
Or is it the next image? Is it also the way the Jew and the Gentile relate? When Paul says there's neither slave nor free, is that just between the slave and God? Or also the slave and the free person? When Paul says there's not male and female, is that just between the woman and God? Or also the man and the woman? The biblical scholar Ben Witherington the third, and you know if your end name's in the third, you, you're quite the scholar. <laughs> a text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. In other words, you can make almost any verse in Scripture mean whatever you want it to mean if you just have it on its own. That's a text without a context. Whatever you want it to mean. Yeah, even Satan quotes scripture to Jesus when he's tempted in the wilderness. And I am so grateful that we've been given uh, the richness of scripture. As English-speaking Americans, there is no reason for you ever to feel like you have no sense of context. You got the whole thing. Very accessible to you. And that's such good news. Because one way that we can gain some clarity here is to broaden the context of this verse in Galatians. So I want us to look at some of the context of Galatians. Some of the literary context. Some of the cultural, historical context. It's going to help us. The letter is essentially an argument that Paul is making against the Judaizers. The Judaizers. And that's the scholarly word for a group of Jewish Christians. And it sounds like you shouldn't, to me it sounds like I shouldn't be able to say it, Judaizers. It just sounds like it's meant to be cruel. It's not. It's this group of Jewish Christians who felt like in order to have an authentic Christian faith, you had to follow the law, the Jewish law, the Torah, particularly as it relates to circumcision and to what you eat, to dietary restrictions, because that's how someone will know externally, if you're Jewish or not. Have you been circumcised? Do you eat the right things? Okay, so those are the Judaizers. They're a group of Christians. And because they believed that, there was this way of looking down on the Gentile Christians. Not only were they not born into the Jewish faith, but they were eating all the wrong sorts of things, and they weren't getting circumcised. So this group of Judaizers shows up in the Galatian church, and they're saying these things like, you need to get circumcised. You guys are eating all the wrong things. You're not keto. And then eventually, sorry, that was a bad joke. Um, but they attack their diet, right? So the letter is all about who can really fully be included into the life of the community of Jesus. Who actually gets to participate? the Judaizers demanded that the Gentiles be circumcised. And Paul prohibits this. He's adamant against this. The Judaizers said the Jews shouldn't even sit at the same table. They shouldn't have table fellowship with Greeks and Gentile Christians who break the Jewish dietary laws. 
Here's one of the stories in Galatians that gives us a peek into the context for Paul. This is Galatians 2, verse 11. When Cephas, that's just Peter's other name, by the way. So when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, says Paul, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, these are the Judaizers, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Peter used to eat with them. But when the Judaizers arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. That's the Judaizers. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truths of the gospel, I said to Cephas, to Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So even though, what Paul's getting at here, even though Peter knows better, he knows better. He's even had a vision that God said it's okay to eat anything. He knows better, but he gives in to the pressure of this Jewish group concerned with certain markers, certain physical signs, circumcision, the food you eat, physical signs of who's in and who's out, who gets to participate, and in what way. You know, if you were a Jewish Christian, and you were circumcised, and you ate the right food, and you observed the right holidays, the right holy days, this had a practical effect. Um, You'd be elevated in the community. You had a special status. You see, the Jewish Christians were privileged, and the Gentile Christians were being treated as second-class citizens in the church. Peter wouldn't even eat with them. Do you see how this soteriological truth, this salvation between you and God, has ecclesiological, has church-wide ramifications. In Christ, Gentiles are reconciled to God, and Paul is outraged at Peter and the Judaizers for treating them otherwise. Okay? Paul's letter to the Galatians is meant to attack this harmful and divisive way of practicing church. In the whole chapter of Galatians 3, Paul's building this argument for mutual standing and equality in the church. He does this by saying that we're all children of Abraham. In verse 7, he says that, all believers, children of Abraham. In verse 9 and in verse 14, he says All Christians, all believers are blessed along with Abraham. And it culminates at the end of the chapter with our verses today, 26 through 29, where he says we are all heirs, sons of the seed of Abraham. So when Paul says in verse 28, there is no longer Jew nor Gentile, Paul's not just saying that Gentiles can now be saved. Because even the Judaizers believed that Gentiles could be saved. They just thought you had to get circumcised and eat the right diet. Paul isn't just saying that Gentiles can now be members of the community of faith. 
He's making a statement about how Jewish and Gentile Christians should practically interact in the community of faith. They must be treated as equals. They must be welcomed to table fellowship. And they must not be forced to follow Jewish ceremonial or dietary laws as a condition for acceptance. Then Paul makes it clear that this discrimination of class, slave and free, and gender, men and women, is also made null in Christ. You know, typical Greek and Jewish attitudes during the time Paul wrote this would not have found it easy to digest. Would not at all. Ethnic background, Jews and Gentiles, economic standing, slave and free, and gender, male and female, were three of the major barometers of social standing and privilege in the day. So this is a very big deal. There's this Jewish prayer that it's been said uh, that many of the the Jews at the time would be praying this prayer daily. And it, it says this, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who hast not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. This is a prayer of thanks for a Jewish man. Uh, Because according to rabbinic tradition, these three groups, Gentiles, slaves, and women, wouldn't have been allowed to study the Torah. Okay, so while it might sound like, oh, that's such a, that's bigotry, that prayer, it likely would have been coming from a true place of gratitude. I have access to something good, the ability to study the Torah that others don't. And for that, I'm thankful. That's on the Jewish side. On the Gentile side, there's a strikingly similar saying that comes from the other side. And this one's attributed to Plato. It says, I'm thankful I was born a human being and not a beast. Next, a man and not a woman. Thirdly, a Greek and not a barbarian. So, if you were looking for a couple prayers to pray around your Thanksgiving dinner this year, uh, those are a couple free of charge. But, I mean, notice in the language, it's not just this healthy sense of ethnic identity. Like, I'm so glad I'm Jewish. We have such great culture, and I love it. Or, I'm so glad I'm a Greek, you know. We have these great statues and stuff. No. It's, it's built into that uh, a sort of superiority of the other person. Like, I'm so glad I'm a Greek and not a barbarian. Those are the only options. Or I'm glad I'm a Jew and not a heathen. You can see how this would make Christian communi- community impossible. One side views the other as less than human. And the other views the other side as less than human. They look down on each other. And so Paul reminds them of their profound unity in Christ, a unity that has practical ramifications on how they interact and worship together. The New Testament scholar Philip Payne, he says, it seems undeniable that Paul fought 
to actualize the social implications of Galatians 3.28 in the church. Philip Payne, by the way, if you're wondering, how do I go deeper into this? I strongly recommend his book. Um, It's called Man and Woman, One in Christ. He was a professor at TEDS, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity, for a long time, uh, ordained in our denomination, and has just a fantastic book exploring these verses. But for him, it's very clear that the relationship between Jews and Greeks, or Jews and Gentiles, is meant to change uh, here and now. It isn't just a vertical statement about one relating to Christ. It's a horizontal statement about relating to one another. And the same is true, I'm going to go quicker in this next one, about the second barrier that baptism in Christ is meant to bulldoze, and that's slave and free. Paul isn't just saying that slaves can be saved. He's saying that the way slaves and free relate to one another needs to be radically reoriented under the rule and reign of Christ. Um, I would encourage you to read the, the letter to Philemon. It's just one chapter. It's very short. Um, But Paul, what he does there is he encourages Philemon to receive his runaway slave, Onesimus, no longer as slave, but as dear brother. It's in verses 15 and 16. As an equal. As an equal. The theological reality that in Christ there is no longer slave nor free has real world effects. It brings about a new way of relating. It opens up the possibility for slaves to actually hold places and positions of leadership in the church. Do you realize how countercultural that would have been 2,000 years ago? Most scholars, when they look back on history, they believe that the Onesimus that Paul sends back to Philemon later becomes the bishop of Ephesus. Onesimus, the bishop of Ephesus. Um, Which is like an insane trajectory to go from slave to the highest ruling rank and order in the Christian church within a lifetime. I mean, it it, it mirrors in some way Mary Bethune Cook, or Mary Mary McLeod Bethune's life uh, to go from what she did to where she ended up. It's really beautiful. He takes on a leading role in the Church of Christ, Onesimus. So then we get to the third barrier, gender. And it may seem strange that Paul goes here next, but I think it makes total sense in Galatians. And the reason is, if you ever read Galatians, you'll see, my goodness, do they talk about circumcision a lot. What's the deal with that? But what's lying right under the surface of this whole argument against the necessity of circumcision in Galatians is the very obvious exclusion of women. Women could not be circumcised. And so the correlation between women and Gentiles is as clear as day. Baptism itself 
which is what verse 26 and 27 invite us into. Baptism is itself literally a symbol that entry into the family of God no longer has anything to do with your genitals. Okay? What's awesome is many ancient baptismal pools, they would have this verse, Galatians 3.28, carved into them. Okay? And a lot of them were in the shape of a womb back then. Why? Well, we talked a couple weeks ago about Nicodemus being invited into new birth. Baptism in the early church was seen as this literal act of new birth. Okay, so you'd come out of the waters, born again, and the first words before your eyes would remind you that you are born into a new community. You are born into a new family that has a new way of relating. Now, Paul's intention isn't to obliterate gender. He's not intending to reverse the goodness of God's creative intentions. The goal isn't androgyny, but it's harmony. It's harmony. It's not to deny the reality of sexuality, but to affirm that discrimination based on gender is overcome in Christ. One of the obvious ways that Paul wants us to know that that discrimination is overcome is by the nullification of circumcision which again is the theme of Galatians. Towards the end of Galatians, I love it, there's these two verses that sound similar to ours. Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. So notice, circumcision doesn't mark you. Faith being expressed, being shown, being made visible in love does. So how do you know if you're in the family of God now? Is your faith expressed in love? And then to end the book, he says, these are some of the final verses. Chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. What counts is the new creation. What counts is that God is making all things new, and that includes the way that Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free men and women relate to one another. Circumcision, one very practical way that things changed. But the other was the literal makeup of church. In the temple of Jesus' day, there were literal walls. You could put the image up. There's literal walls, right? You got the holy place there, the court of Israel, which was the court of men, the women's court, the court of Gentiles, literally dividing walls in the church of how far in you could go how much access you had. And Paul says in Ephesians, another one of his letters, in Ephesians 2.14, that Christ has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. 
The two he made one, he says in context of that verse in Ephesians, is the Jew and the Gentile. But you've got to recognize that the court of women is literally between the court of Gentiles and the court of Israel. You can't destroy... They can't come together without destroying what's in between. Are you getting that? The court of the women with its own dividing wall, it laid between the court of the Gentiles and the temple. And Galatians 3.28 implies that the spiritual abolition of both of these walls and the consequent opening of temple fellowship status to women was as well as Gentiles. So the abolition of these walls and the nullification of circumcision brings about full inclusion of women into the life of the church. Full participation by women as well as Gentiles in the Christian church. What Paul's getting at is this new creation language. That's how he ends Galatians 6. And that's why it's tied up in the imagery of baptism. Those who've been baptized in Christ must now relate differently to one another because the old ways of relating where Gentile is lesser than the Jew and slave is lesser than free and female is lesser than male, those have to go. They need to go because they are literally the result of the fall not of God's original creative intent. That's why we read Genesis 1. Let's look at it again, which was read for us. Okay. And what I want you to notice when you turn to that, Genesis 1, um, 26 to 28, notice some of these things. You can be looking at it on the screen. God makes them male and female. Okay? And what does he task them with early on? Ruling. Okay. Reigning. Does he say which one gets to rule? God makes them male and female, tasks both of them with ruling and reigning. Both are invited to mutually rule over God's creation. Both are tasked with being fruitful and multiplying. Both are tasked with the cultural mandate, which is to create culture, to create goodness, to fill the world with it, and then to subdue it. Man's not told to subdue woman, nor is woman told to subdue man. But then something goes terribly wrong. Man and woman both disobey God, and it fractures things. It fractures everything. And what I want you to notice is that when man and woman disobey God, it doesn't just distort their vertical relationship with God. It distorts their relationship horizontally between one another. Genesis 3.16 shows us what happens to their relationship. This is after the fall. And God says... All that's going to happen to women, there'll be this pain in childbearing. And then he says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is the first time either gender 
is ruling over the other gender. And it's a result of a fractured relationship with God. It has horizontal consequences. The same word for desire here, in case you get hung up on it, is used again in Genesis 4, verse 7, just a couple uh, chapters later. And it's said to Cain, the first murderer. It says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You see how there's a contention? It's this desire for, for sort of possessing something. And so early on in Scripture, Genesis 3.16, there's this contention. The subjugation of women is now introduced into the story after the fall as a result of sin. Okay? When Adam and Eve disobey God, it does not just destroy the goodness of their relationship with God. It destroys the goodness of their relationship with each other as well, and it results in the longest-running war, the battle of the sexes. This is why the crucial question for us is this. Does baptism into Christ only affect my relationship with God? Or does it affect every other relationship as well? Is it only vertical or is it vertical and horizontal? Behold, God says in Revelation, behold, I'm making all things new. All things new. In Christ, there's a new way of relating. Christ breaks down the walls. He doesn't obliterate our differences. Men are still invited to be men, women to be women, but in a way that mutually submits to one another. In Christ's reversal of the fall, in the kingdom of God, men are no longer to rule over women. Men are to rule alongside women. And women are to rule alongside men. In a world that's confused about gender and sexuality, the church can show others how men and women together beautifully display the fullness of God's image. Again, this harkens back to Paul. It's about baptism. It's not removing a tiny piece of skin. It's rebirth. It's full immersion into death and new life. That's the image of baptism. It's all new. It's all new. Paul rejects the bondage of circumcision and the ritual requirements of the law. What this does is frees Gentiles and women to full standing and participation in the life of the church. It makes possible for women to be full partners, full partners in the kingdom work of ministry. We see this played out, by the way, in all of Paul's writings. Paul says Timothy learned the faith from his mother and grandmother. Paul says Priscilla teaches Apollos in Ephesus. Paul says Junia is described as an apostle 
in 1 Corinthians 9.1. An apostle, by the way, in the early church was someone who literally witnessed the resurrection of Christ and then was commissioned to preach the gospel to others. And the church father, John Chrysostom, he said, Junea, in echoing scripture, is great among the apostles. He said she's a woman to be celebrated. 1 Corinthians 11 includes women praying and prophesying in church. In Acts, women are teaching. In Romans 16, women are leading the church. In Philippians 4, women are contending alongside Paul in ministry. What God is creating in his kingdom is not the subjugation of women. Just like it's not the subjugation of Gentiles or the subjugation of slaves. It's not the subjugation of anyone. God's made every single person including women, in his image. And he's at work restoring all of broken humanity in Christ. The kingdom vision, God's kingdom, is of men and women serving alongside each other, recognizing and celebrating each other's God-given gifts, callings, and abilities. This isn't just good news for women. This is good news for men. This is good news for everyone. This is good news for the whole church. I want you to think for a minute about how misshapen, how distorted church and society has become without women freely exercising their gifts and callings and leadership in our lives. The Me Too movement, the Church Too movements probably many other two movements, they've made it undeniably clear that there's been an insidious amount of abuse in the church and society. Of course this would happen. If half the population of the church, if half of humanity is left in subjugation, we're left without half of the goodness of God on display in our churches. And this is a wound that needs healing. We've been distorted because half of humanity has been held back in the church. Half of those who've been equally gifted by the Holy Spirit have been restricted. If you look at any of Paul's gift lists, where he says the spiritual gifts... None of them have any gender qualifications on them. Not teaching. Not leadership. At least those he should have said, well, but only to men I'm giving those. He doesn't say that some are going only to men. I want to say this to the women in this room. I'm coming to a close. God has created you as an essential and significant person with a role in his world, with something unique and needed to offer in his kingdom, in his church, in this church, you are critical. Men, brothers, don't get in the way of this. Seth McCain, he says, When someone stands in the way of God, they get leveled. Brothers, take care not to obstruct what God is doing. 
empower, resource, celebrate women. It will bless our church. It will bless our world. Amen. God, at the end of the day, we want to submit to what your spirit is doing. So Lord, I long to preach with authority the way I've heard you speaking through the text with doing due diligence and seeking out scholarship and learning and prayer. But at the end of the day, Lord, I only want to do your will. And so I pray, God, just acknowledging the different people in this room, that your spirit would seek to be with them, to minister to them even now. Lord, that our differences, that our dividing walls of hostility would be bulldozed. And your prayer, Jesus, that we would be one might be a little bit more true this morning. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.